We enter into the second section, and that is the fall of humanity in creation. Now, this section is actually Genesis 3 through 11. We often see as the fall as just chapter 3, but it's actually 3 through 11 because all these chapters, the fall, Cain and Abel, the flood, the Tower of Babylon, these are all demonstrating the constant, continuous fall of humanity. And these, three, these chapters, 3 through 11, are the heart, the foundation of Paul's statement for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that's what these chapters are demonstrating. And will set the foundation for the rest of the Bible that will continue to make that argument and develop that theme and idea. God has created this creation. He has created a garden. He has placed Adam, Adam his, him and her, the man and the woman, in the Adama, the soil, in order to rule over it and expand the garden. And everything is good. Two trees have been presented before them. The tree of life, which symbolizes some kind of idea of coming before Yahweh and submitting to him for life and knowledge, wisdom and hope and joy and peace and all this kind of stuff, an intimate relationship with him. The other tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, represents the choice to become autonomous and to choose your own law and to do what you want in putting your desires and your will and your wisdom above that of God and your relationship with him. The word autonomous means auto, self, namas, law, self-law. And this is probably, I think, one of the best words that really describe what is sin or what is at the heart of sin. This is what leads to sin. This is the, 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 the will and the desire that produces sin. And James, he says, your desires lead to sin and sin leads to death. And that's what autonomy is. Selfishness is a good word. Sin is a good word. But I feel like autonomy is very descriptive because this is where we're basically going to say, I'm in control of my life. I am a law unto myself. And I can write my own law, my own truth, and I'm going to follow that regardless of what Yahweh says. Because I'm right, he's wrong. I'm going to follow my heart, just do it, have it my way, that kind of a thing. And this is what autonomy is. This is the heart of our sin nature. This is the heart of what drives us. This is what then becomes manifested as selfishness, where we desire what we want and even to disregard other people in our own lives. If you're willing to disregard Yahweh, then you're willing to disregard other people. This then leads to sin. What is sin? Sin is going contrary to the will of God. It's basically all sin is. I mean, sin feels like this giant theological term or this mysterious abstract concept. And in today's culture, we find a hard time explaining to the world who denies sin and feels like it's this ethereal, abstract, religion, Christianese kind of a word. But really all sin is going contrary to the will of God. And so if God says this is what his will is and you oppose it in your autonomy, then you're sinning. You're going contrary to him. A lot of people say, well, who cares about God and what he wants? Who is he to say what I should do and what I should not do? But in some sense, this is no different than somebody saying, you know what? This is very unloving when you do this to me and it hurts me when you do it. And you're like, I don't care. And you do it anyways. You're going contrary to what they feel is love, what will affect them and what will hurt them and what doesn't. And you're basically saying, 
I don't care what you think and how it affects you. I'm going to do it anyways because I want to. That's exactly what you're doing with God. The difference is he's also our authority and our God, and that hits it up on an extra level. So they're living in this good garden. And chapter 3 begins with the serpent entering into it. Now, the serpent is never called Satan. Never in the Bible is a serpent ever called Satan. In fact, the Bible twice in Genesis 3 describes it as a wild animal. We're told now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that God created. Then later in chapter 3, verse 15, we're told that he cursed are you above all the wild animals of creation. Now we know that Satan is not a wild animal. We're also told that he's going to be crawling on his belly as a judgment. We know that Satan doesn't crawl around on his belly. The other thing is we're told that there's going to be enmity or conflict or divisiveness between all the offspring of the woman and all the offspring of the serpent. When you read that closely, we've kind of ignored that as a church. We just think like, oh, it's the offspring of Eve, who Jesus, who will come into conflict one day with the offspring of Satan. The problem is it says all the offspring of the woman. That's not Jesus. That's every descendant that she'll ever have is in constant conflict with all the offspring of Satan. Well, Satan doesn't have offspring. He doesn't have children. He's definitely not all this. And so this doesn't refer to the demons either because the word offspring is a very specific getting, giving birth, producing from your own being kind of a word. This all kind of shows that this isn't the Satan. Now, is there a satanic power behind the serpent? Yeah, probably, maybe, I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell me. Did, the ser- did Satan corrupt the serpent and turn it? Maybe, maybe, possibly, I don't know. I can only tell you what the Bible tells me. I can't make stuff up. Well, I can, but I choose not to. can't fill in the blanks. And so nowhere, and you would think the Gospels or something later would also say that this is the serpent or the serpent is the devil, and it doesn't. In culture, all throughout the ancient Near East, the serpent is a symbol of chaos. It's another symbol. The three primary symbols of chaos are the raging sea, which we've already talked about, darkness, which we've talked about, and the serpent slash dragon slash leviathan, sea monster, or a sea dragon, or a sea dinosaur. A dragon is basically just their ancient version of a word for dinosaur. And these reptilian creatures are a symbol of chaos because we've all seen Jurassic Park. There's a whole lot of chaos when they come into the picture. And so that's the kind of an idea. All through every single culture that you go through in the entire world, the serpent is a symbol of chaos. Even the Chinese culture, yes, they revere the serpent as a symbol of wisdom, but they also fear it as a symbol of chaos. Same thing with the Egyptians. And so sometimes, in Hinduism as well, so sometimes the serpent does double duty with the wisdom and chaos because there's almost this like yin and yang kind of an idea that they're developing with every positive there's a negative, so to speak. And the idea is that the serpent comes in and it's chaos. Where does the serpent come from? Don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us that. But there's nothing wrong with that because the Bible is not giving us every possible information that we could possibly ever have. We're not told where Cain's wife comes from and how he found her and married her. How does he go and develop a city? All this kind of stuff. There's lots of things the Bible doesn't tell us. 
The serpent comes from somewhere, it enters in the garden, and what it ultimately symbolically represents is the chaos is entered into the good garden. What is Adam and Eve's job as the image of God? It is to rule and subdue, to bring order to what is disordered, just like Yahweh demonstrated before them, gave them the template in the garden, and said, now go out and be fruitful and multiply. So chaos enters into the garden. What is Adam and Eve supposed to do? Rule and subdue it. The whole point is if you're supposed to join God in doing something, then you need to have something to do in joining him. If I say, hey, join me, and I'll hire you to be a carpenter with me, and you'll be my apprentice, and then you come and we just sit there and watch Netflix, you're like, what? what? And I'm like, well, I don't have any wood. I don't have anything to build. You're like, but I thought I was going to join you in building. Yeah, yeah, that's our purpose, but we're not going to actually do that. This is what chaos is. The serpent represents that you're supposed to join me in subduing chaos and bringing order. The serpent becomes the test. The serpent becomes the purpose. The serpent becomes the exercise. So we know that there is some kind of chaos out there in the universe. We call it demons. Something else is going on that we don't know about, and the Bible goes very little detail in, and the serpent ends, enters. This means that they are to drive it out of the garden. They are to drive it out of the garden. We talked about expand the garden, what you're supposed to do in work and life. That's what they're supposed to do. Now, God, remember, rules and subdues by bringing order and redemption, which means that the implication is, at best, they're supposed to redeem the serpent. At worst, drive it out completely and destroy it. But if this is a part of God's good creation, and he created this animal, and he called it good, and it has gone bad somehow that we don't know, then Adam and Eve is meant to love and redeem and restore the creature. And if it refuses, then to drive it out. That's somewhat reading between the lines, but as you look throughout the entire Bible, that seems to be the picture that is being painted. Instead, they choose to join chaos and embrace it. And this is what becomes the travesty of the fall. It's that when Adam and Eve not only say, I'm going to write my own law, but when they choose to embrace the chaos that God purposely designed them to overcome and to remove. We are humans who are created to bring order and redemption, and we choose to embrace chaos, dysfunctionality, and destruction instead of what our purpose is. And not only that, then we say, you're wrong, God, our Father, and we write our own law and do what we want. And this is what destroys the relationship with God. If you did that to your friend or spouse or child, it would be horribly offensive. And some of us may have experienced that kind of betrayal or hurt. This is what Adam and Eve are doing. They're going contrary to the will of God. They're defining good and evil for themselves. And they are embracing the serpent slash chaos. And so they choose to eat of the tree. The tree in itself is not a sinful, evil thing. It bears wisdom. God called everything good. The tree is good. What God has created is good. Wisdom is good. It's the fact that they choose to grab the tree on their conditions, on their terms, and do it the way that they want to. Remember, nothing is bad in creation. It's our abuse and twisting of it, or our seeking it from the wrong source, or using it for our own purposes that makes it bad. 
and so they fall. When humanity rejected Yahweh's rule, they lost their intimate relationship with him and life and blessing that came with it. So as a result, they immediately are broken with each other inside. They are filled with shame. They are hiding it, covering it, which means they're covering their vulnerability. They refuse to be vulnerable and open with God or each other ever again. And I don't mean ever, 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 but in the deepest sense of vulnerability ever again. So they become broken inside, filled with shame and fear of what the other will do. They become conflict with each other. They begin to throw each other under the bus and blame each other. And then it says that she will desire to take his rulership and he will suppress her for his own rulership as well. So now husband, wife, man, and woman are going to battle out for headship. No longer will they be equals, they will be competitors. And so the relationship with humanity is broken. The ground is going to be cursed and it will no longer freely produce for them, which means our relationship with creation is broken. And then we've broken our relationship with God and we're casted out of the garden, no longer allowed to dwell with him in a right relationship. So once the relationship with God becomes broken, then your only other two relationships you have with humanity and with creation become broken as well. So God, humans, and land, the three most important things, the links between all those things are severed, broken, dysfunctional, twisted, perverted, adulterated, defiled, whatever you want to call it. This is the consequence. So they lost the right to dwell with God. God's not kicking out because he hates them and he doesn't love them because the whole Bible is about redemption. He's removing them because he cannot be in the presence of sin. In the same way that when people violate you or break your trust or wrong you, you have a hard time being with them and trusting them until the relationship is restored. Likewise, God can't be in the presence of sin because his righteousness eradicates sin. And he loves us too much so he kicks us out and he tells us that we are not allowed to eat the tree lest we live forever in our sin. He doesn't want us to live forever in our sin. It's thus the kingdom of God, heaven, and the kingdom of humanity, earth, are torn apart. And there now becomes this great divorce. A divorce between God and us, a divorce between each other, a divorce between us and creation, and ultimately the fall of the material realm out of heaven. And heaven and earth become two distinct places. Now, there seems to be overlaps as we go through the Bible, but a perfectly synced overlapping is not existent anymore. Therefore, humans lost the right to kingship and priesthood. They lost the right. If you're kicked out of the temple of God and you're no longer in an intimate relationship with him, you've lost your priesthood. You can no longer be the mediator between God and humanity when you yourself aren't even connected with God. You can no longer expand the garden when yourself are not, you brought chaos into the garden. And you lost your kingship because you failed to rule and subdue. The other thing is here is not only do we lose our kingship and queenship, but we became subject to creation. When we chose to bow down to creation, the serpent, and obey it instead, we lifted the creation over the creator and we became subject to it. Remember, if you obey something, you're bowing down to it, you're submitting it. And so we then become subject to creation. And creation is going to rule over us and dominate us and break us to the point that eventually creation will actually kill us and to the dust will return. And this is the idea that once we are cut off from the source of life, God, then we will begin to die. Now, God said, 
dying you will die if you eat of the fruit. And the serpent says, no, you won't die. So when they ate of it, of course, no, they didn't immediately have a heart attack and die right on the spot. But when they were cut off from God, what is death? Death is separation. So all death is, is separation. When you're separated from your, your loved ones, it's the death of the relationship. When you're separated from God, it's the death of your relationship with him. When you're separated from your body, it's your physical death. And so when they became separated from God, they became separated from the source of life. Therefore, death entered into their life. And like a flower, you can cut it off from its stem, and it will stay vibrant and look alive for a while, but eventually they're dead. By now, the Valentine's flowers are dying. And so eventually they die. And that's what happens to the human body. Eventually, if you're cut off from God long enough, the body gets old, it begins to decay, and it begins to die, and then to the dust it returns. And that's the consequence of a broken relationship with God, the source of life, hope, and joy. And so this is what we chose. This is what God tried to warn us of as he warned us not to go to an alternate source for wisdom. From this point on, we're in a broken state. We're in a broken, dysfunctional, separated state from God, and we can have no life without him. And so now God will begin to paint the picture of what sin really looks like in our lives before he can begin to paint the picture of what redemption will look like when he comes into the creation. So despite this, Adam and Eve had many children, including Abel and Cain, despite death being brought into creation. The fact that he calls Eve the mother of life, this is God's grace. Yes, we're going to die eventually, and we're all one day closer to our death today than we were yesterday, but the reality is we're still able to produce life. We're still be able to give birth to babies and, and grow a family, and there is a sense of hope that with each death, it's a reminder of our separation from God and creation, or the, and, and, and the death that we've brought in our life, but with each birth, it's a reminder of there's still something in us that can be redeemed, and there's a hope of redemption that is yet to come. So this brings us to Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel basically are presenting their sacrifices before God. God does not describe what makes one sacrifice worse or better than the other. The implication is that Cain's heart is not in it. The fact that Cain gets mad at God when his sacrifice is not accepted, and the fact that Cain kills his brother out of jealousy that God did not accept his sacrifice, which doesn't make sense, but that's human nature, shows that his heart is wrong. So Cain did not pursue Yahweh with all of his heart. He gave sacrifices because it was required of him, not because he actually loved God. Abel gave sacrifices because he actually loved God, not because it was required. God blessed Abel. And the picture that's being painted here is if you do the right thing out of fear of consequence or a desire for reward, then it will not bring blessing and fruit in your life. But if you pursue God because you love him and because he's worthy of it, then it brings blessings in your life. So Cain becomes jealous and he destroys his brother. The point here is that sin has infiltrated the family. Sin is not just an individual thing. That now I have sin in my life, but it won't affect anybody else. What I think and what I feel and what I want to do is what I want to do and think and feel, and it doesn't affect anybody else. The point is that sin does affect other people, and it does spread to the family. 
not in a virus contagious sense, but that it was always there. But here's the fruit of it, that a brother is even willing to kill his own brother. He's willing to kill his own brother out of jealousy and brings destruction to his family. And this shows that not only is the individual dysfunctional and broken, but the family is also dysfunctional and broken as well. Yahweh then judged Cain and removed him. He sent him eastward. Now this is a constant theme that as they left the Garden of Eden, God sent them eastward out of the garden. Then Cain is going to be sent eastward away from God. Moving eastward in the Bible is always symbolic of walking away from God out of my own free will or God sending you away in judgment for your unrepentant sin. And so eastward is symbolic of that because if the gate in the Garden of Eden was in the east, therefore the Holy of Holies would have been in the west, so you're moving away from God. And eastward becomes a literary idea. That doesn't mean if you're in your car going eastward, you're going away from God into judgment. It's a literary device that is being used to demonstrate what is internally happening in the heart of a person or in the judgment. Cain goes off, and God says, you're going to be a wanderer. And Cain says, forget you, I'm going to build a city. I'm going to settle down and build my own empire, so to speak, my own kingdom. And so Cain begins to build this city. And this is the first city slash nation that's developed in the Bible. And from this point on, the city and the nation are seen as bad. The city slash nation is always bad in the Bible. It represents sin. It represents rebellion. It represents people not scattering and gathering together. And so in this city, Cain has multiple descendants. And these descendants, they begin to be polygamous, having multiple wives, collecting them like trophies. Even the names of Lemech, one of Cain's descendants, the name of his wives, suggest that they're just beautiful trinkets for him to collect. There's not an intimate relationship there, but they're just beautiful things that he's collecting for his own purposes and his own desires, not because of a relationship. And then he goes out and murders people and then begins to brag about the murder. And then the descendants come along and they begin to form technology. Now, when they form technology, the city and technology is not evil in itself, but it's that we form technology in cities for our own purposes. And so they form technology to overcome the curse. Now, think about it. Even today, we know for a fact that statistically speaking, the larger a city is, the less likely you're going to know people. In small towns, people tend to know each other a lot better. People tend to get in neighborhoods and know each other a lot better. And there tends to be more of a family attitude. Now, there's always exceptions in the city and the small towns. But generally speaking, small towns, small villages, especially in the Eastern world where they're not as individualistic as we as our Americans, there's a greater sense of community. And I know people who live in the East, and when they go to the big mega cities of Shanghai and China, nobody seems to know anybody. And it's just sprawling business um, buildings where people are stacked on each other like ant farms. Yet when you go out into the rural communities of the farmers, everybody seems to know everybody. And so the sense of community begins to break down the bigger a city is because we get overwhelmed by how many people are around us and we get busy. Then we also know that crime increases. Crime is always far. The bigger a city, the greater the crime rate is. That's a statistical fact. There are exceptions, but it's a statistical fact. Because the less likely you know each other, the more willing you are to harm people. And the less accountability that the community provides for you because they don't know you. 
And then technology comes in and it tends to isolate us even more. And hopefully by now, I don't need to, uh, a paper or an argument to convince people what technology does and our relationships and breaking us down. Can these things be good, used for good? Yes. Do I have technology? Yes. But with every gain, there's a loss. And we need to question, ask what those losses are. Are they worth it? And can I handle them personally? And can society handle them? And so this becomes the beginning of our isolation, our brokenness, even though we're massing together in large crowds. And there's lots of books written that people will do things in a crowd or a mob that they would never do as an individual. There's a book by Jose E. Ortega called The Revolt of the Masses that basically deals with that whole idea of we will do things in a mob that we will never do as an individual. And I think we saw some of that this summer. And so this is what Cain begins to build, the city. The city will eventually lead to Babylon later on. Sin begins to increase and go through the family. Now the land becomes even more cursed for Cain because now no longer will the land not produce freely, but now it won't produce at all for him. And so there's a sense that not only does the humanity begin to continue to die, but the land continues to die. 